happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 164 for February the 6th. 2020. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we had six inches of snow on Wednesday night and morning and had opportunities for local kids to go sledding, which I don't think has happened in about six years. So yeah, lots of exciting stuff. Um, I am the innovation, the technology integration and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School here in Northwest Oklahoma City. And I am joined, as always, by Dr. Jason Neifer, who appears to have found connectivity in a dark cave somewhere near <laughs> Missoula. Welcome, Jason. Good evening, Wes. Uh, yes, I, I, uh, uh, my house is empty tonight. My wife and, and subsequently my puppy are out of town, so it's just me and my cat. So I am doing this from my living room tonight in Missoula, Montana, where I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the beautiful and white and slushy University of Montana campus. And uh, we've had a lot of weather here, too, although, as we've mentioned in the past in the podcast, February should be a snowy and cold uh, month for the state. And this year, actually, it's starting to turn into kind of the standard fare here. It's slushy and snowy and rainy and snowy and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So I think there is some kind of weather pattern change that's going on. And this is Lily the cat, who is an ancient um, kitty that apparently would like to sit on my chest right now for a reason that passes understanding. But this isn't a podcast about my cat. This is the EdTech Situation Room. And Wes, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? Well, normally on Wednesday night, this week on Thursday night, we are looking at recent technology headlines through an educational lens. And so we will provide as best we can some analysis and some uh even advice sometimes when it comes to educational technology, not only as it applies to us individually as educators, but, you know, sometimes as it applies to our organizations and schools. And shout out to Peggy George, who is joining us on our off night here on Thursday night. And we do welcome anybody who is able to join us live, either on Facebook Live, which you can find us at facebook.com slash edtechsr, or you can find us on YouTube Live, and we always tweet out that link prior to the show. Uh, when you can find us on Twitter at edtechsr, we um, have a chat room and are happy to have anybody who wants to chime in, share links, ask questions. Um, you know, we've uh, we're we're a good we're a very friendly community here, so. We would welcome anybody who wants to share either something during the show live or if you want to share afterwards. So, Dr. Neifer, where would you like to begin tonight's discussions? Well, um, there's a lot of, obviously, uh, things going on nationally right now. We are not a politics podcast, as we mentioned many times here in the past. And let's be honest, you really don't want to get Wes and I started on politics. We will both rant away. We're both former college debaters and unafraid to express our opinion about such matters. But... I do think this week's shenanigans, as it relates to the Iowa caucus, uh, particularly the Democratic side of the Iowa caucus, is an interesting study in technology integration that I think has a broader message for schools. So for those of you unaware of the situation, uh, there is some details in uh, from NBC News on, on February 5th, and also probably every source of news you've been looking at the last 72 hours, but... Monday night's Iowa caucus uh, doesn't have final results yet, although I just was sent a notification that maybe a final result is imminent. But 
there was an issue because the Democratic caucus in Iowa, that's that, that in the caucus system, I, it's, it's hard to describe, uh, in, in like a 10 sentences or less, but basically it involves people showing up to various locations across the state of Iowa. And then there is an initial count of votes. And then there's a, a time of persuasion where other members that are caucusing can try to persuade those to change their mind to go to other candidates. Sometimes candidates are declared inviolable because of a lack of support and those supports will go elsewhere. And they take a secondary count. And then based on that, they assign a delegate number that ultimately turns into the number of delegates that will support that candidate in the Democratic National Convention. I'm sorry, the, the nominating convention later this summer. And what happens is that, um, it's, it's, it's can be very ruckus. Um, it's not necessarily as much disorganized as it is, I, I think, uh, much less, uh, sleepy than a traditional vote for that. And this year, the Iowa Democratic Party decided they were going to have, uh, results sent back from individual caucus sites to a central location via app. And that's where things start getting interesting because the app that was put in place, um, uh, well, from all accounts, was not tested. Uh, it, there was no training for the app. There was a lot of instability in the app itself. And then the backup that was created was a telephone number where individuals could call in their results, but there was just the one telephone number and not really a plan of what happens if multiple people are trying to call in those results. So here we are, 72 hours after the caucus is finished, and there are nearing 100% of results uh, from what I've been able to determine. Um, uh, Mr. Bujig, the, the former member of South Bend, Indiana, uh, has won the most number of delegates, although Mr. Sanders, or I should say Senator Sanders um, from Vermont, has won the most number of popular votes. The point here is not the result. The point here is that there is now an extraordinary amount of intrigue due to this app. So first, before we get into what I perceive to be the lessons for schools and, and ed tech fights, um, any thoughts here, Wes, from your vantage point watching this unfold this week? Well, I don't know what the right term for this is. We, we, we've talked uh, on the show, I'm sure, about the technology adoption curve, right, that was, uh, I think, based on research that Everett Rogers did, you know, years ago, maybe all the way back in maybe the 50s, talking about early adopters, innovators, you know, and then you have early and late majority, and then you have uh, late majority laggards. So you have this bell curve. And so I think that it can be dangerous to, you know, implement things too quickly. And we sometimes get really excited about the possibilities of technology. And we've been doing a lot of discussions in uh, a class I'm teaching on Sundays about, uh, you know, genomics and about uh, gene editing and CRISPR and things like that. And I think that, you know, there's a tendency in some cases for people to, you know, think that we need to, to go further than the tech, than, than we're really ready for with the technology. And so anyway, if anybody knows what a word for that is, I think the same thing is happening with elections because I don't think that, you know, going all digital for elections is a good idea at all for anybody. I think that, you know, that I, the idea is good. 
Um, and perhaps as our lovely surveillance state, you know, marches forward and we become, you know, more able with biometric identification, for instance, with retinal scans or, you know, DNA swabs or whatever, you know, we're going to have that's going to verify absolutely people's identities and allow for, you know, vote recounts. We're going to you know, be in a place where we can be fully digital. But everything that I've read suggests we absolutely need to have a, at least a paper ballot backup for our elections. And we're really stupid if we're embracing something that's fully digital today, because from what I understand, the systems are not fully, uh, you know, checkable or auditable in the way that it is when you have paper ballots and you can actually count the physical ballots that you have. So as, as much as, you know, I think I will speak for Jason and myself, too. We, we love to use digital technology. We, we think it's fantastic to, you know, have uh, in, in many circumstances productivity boosts and, you know, be able to do more and all that. Um, but when it comes to elections, I, I just think people are jumping the gun and whatever that word is for trying to do it too soon. That's what we're doing in some cases with technology. And I think it's good for us to have high expectations for an app. But, you know, to release that without training and without, you know, proper vetting and testing, it's just very irresponsible. And, you know, it's unfortunate that. Uh, this happens for, for multiple reasons, whatever people's political persuasion would be. We want to, I think, have strong faith and confidence in our electoral system, no matter what our political persuasion is. Absolutely. And then I think there's a broader message here as it relates to schools in that actually there's quite a few of them here. And I keep trying to find this article and I know I will find it at some point, but I mentioned it in the past in the podcast. One of the first signs that I had that um, we could mess up the mobile revolution that started 15 years ago is that we would try to, to overreach what mobile phones could do. And, and I'll give you an example of this. The um, And I need to find the article, and I might spend maybe some quality time this weekend doing it because I, I cite it quite a bit. But there was a, a State Department of Education person, Midwestern somewhere, I think, I'm not entirely sure, but she had stated back in the T9 uh, 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 cell phone days, so early days of mobile phones, that someday you could text your, your chemistry homework to your professor. And I remember hearing that actually a little outraged because it feels like that that that's not the point, right? Like there is an extraordinary thing that can happen, but don't apply the wrong tool to the job. And when I first heard about this app, I said, how silly is it to sit there with a small screen and a virtual keyboard and type in numeral results for an election like that begs for a, a a laptop computer, which I'm guessing it's not a real stretch for someone uh, uh, in any of these caucusing sites in Iowa. A mobile app seems like the absolutely wrong application to that. But then as the story started unfolding this week, I heard a story on NPR from from precinct captains that were running precincts and 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 running the caucus sites that they weren't given training on the app. There was no documentation for the app. The app itself was confusing. And that rang very true to me in hearing so much in the past about misapplication of technology in the classroom, that if you aren't planning for professional development, if you aren't testing things before you roll them out, if you aren't asking the fundamental question of, is this the right tool for the job? I think you're really missing out an opportunity to use the power of technology and then also getting some haters then inspired by the missteps of applying the technology in that way. And so I, um, 
I, I'm interested to find out where this where the story goes. Ultimately, there's already a large amount of hand wringing nationally about this. There are other caucus sites. Uh, Nevada, for example, runs the caucus, uh, and I believe they are in two weeks after New Hampshire. So, uh, and they've already stated they they're not using an app for this purpose. But you know, there there's a, there's some lessons to learn here. And while obviously the political horse race is interesting. And I'm sure no matter what your political persuasion, I think there are larger uh, uh, lessons here, for lack of a better term, for those that are taking technology and wanting to implement it in classrooms. Absolutely. Well, I've got a big set of links that I want to talk about a little bit, but let me go to this one first, because this is a classic case study that every single educator, if you teach or work with pre-service teachers, in-service teachers, you know, copyright is a big deal. And the San Francisco Gate on February 3rd has this article, and it's titled, Disney Sends $250 Bill to Berkeley Elementary School for Screening the Lion King. One of the things that I have said repeatedly in numerous sessions about intellectual property and copyright and books that I've written, uh, you know, and blog posts and podcasts is, you know, don't share a Disney movie and charge admission at your school for a fundraiser because this is an egregious and flagrant violation of copyright and it will get you in trouble. Well, the parent teacher organization or PTA at this elementary school, you know, did just that and they solicited donations and they had money and they actually could have been punished uh, at a much higher level than just this $250 bill. But, you know, Disney said, hey, you know, you need to pay a licensing fee to be able to do that kind of public, you know, show for, for entertainment and then charging money. So this is a good opportunity to talk about fair use. What is educational fair use? We had a lovely video, actually, and I need to write a blog post about this, that our elementary music teacher uh, remixed it to... Um, one of the the uh, Lion King songs in the jungle, um, but they wrote original music to it, uh, lyrics, and the kids performed it. And then our second graders, you know, were the ones who sang it, uh, had this wonderful, you know, video that they made to it. It's just great. And it's a good example of educational fair use from the standpoint that it's a transformative work. It's a remix. It's being done non-commercially. Um, you know, it's not depriving Disney of money, right, which is a, a big thing when it comes to copyright. So anyway, I think that's a, a good case study and <clears throat> certainly not anything that those educators or, or anybody should be upset about because, you know, in our current regime of, you know, copyright and, you know, commercial movies and things like that, this just really uh, steps over the line. So your thoughts about this, Dr. Neifer? Well, in, in looking at some of the reaction to this article, to, to be quite frank, I think wringing your hands about the fact that Disney is a multi-gazillion dollar corporation and then trying to find uh, find a California elementary school, you, you were wrong, right? You were wrong for showing the movie. Like, you can't uh, utilize people's intellectual property in that way. I agree that our copyright laws are somewhat draconian, and we keep extending out uh, copyright law further and further and further and further, with, which I think kind of hurts the original purpose of copyright law, which was to give a distinct period, but a finite period of protection before it goes in the larger public domain. But listen, if you uh, disagree with that, it's I wouldn't blame Disney for that. They're well with 
within their rights by the current legal framework of copyright law to enforce copyright laws that relates to the specific use of a PTA fundraiser to show the Lion King. You have a problem with that. Your your beef is with Congress. It's got nothing to do with with the content creators themselves. And in fact, I think a culture where we we say things like that that content creators don't matter hurts you know, uh, smaller creators as much as it does larger creators. And I've seen some spats on Instagram where individuals have certain types of designs or otherwise things that are either trademarkable or copyrightable that are then repurposed by celebrities uh, and and no attempt at, at, at any sort of payment or agreement is made. And I think it's wrong. So, you know, uh, the bottom line is that we should have a conversation about copyright law and not a conversation about how, you know, uh, uh, aggressive or evil Disney is for enforcing their copyright. Because, you know what, the law is pretty clear. You don't get to show the Lion King for profit. And in fact, you don't get to show the Lion King at all in a school um, unless you can distinctly use it for educational purposes. And it's got to be a episodic deal, not something you do yearly or regularly. Otherwise, you're supposed to get permission to do so. Absolutely. Well, this is probably a good segue to uh, some YouTube articles that you put in. But before that, let me just give a shout out. If anybody wants to do a little, you know, podcast encouraged research, it'd be very interesting to know if there is a librarian at this elementary school and, you know, what that what that dialogue was, um, because, you know, in the event that there's not a librarian, there's there's a great you know, case for, for librarians to stand up and say, look, you know, one of the reasons why we need to have local champions, uh, not only for media literacy, but, you know, digital literacy and understanding copyright and the ways in which we, um, you know, need to be living inside the boundaries of the law. And there's a lot of freedom that we have as educators. We don't have unbounded freedom to do whatever we want, but there, there are limits. So what about this YouTube stuff, Dr. Neifer? I hear there's some changes afoot. Well, there's actually, this is a follow-up article from, uh, uh, I think this was in December when we initially talked about this, but as we mentioned before, YouTube has started enforcing a new set of policies as it regards to content creators and particularly what it does from users they can identify as, uh, as, as child users. So that's the ages 13 and under. And there is the Child Online uh, Privacy Protection Act, or COPA, which is an act that specifically bars targeting advertising towards kids. And again, kids, we mean 13 and under. And YouTube was fined a large amount in a latter 2019. And part of the agreement they made with, I think it was the FTC that, that enforced the action as part of that agreement, uh, they agreed to change the way that they monetize some videos on the YouTube platform. As I mentioned, um, I know a lot of content creators, including some in Montana, that had, I think, legitimate concerns about how vague the new rules are because they are content creators that aim their videos at adults. But because of how vague YouTube's new, new rules are, which include things like if you have a video aimed at children and you don't market as aimed as children, then you could be, your, your channel could be banned or videos could be permanently put into aimed at children mode, which means you can't monetize them, nor can you get detailed statistics about the videos. And there's been a lot of interesting conversation about this. A lot of content creators that are aimed at younger sets 
of audiences were concerned because it did significantly limit their ability to make income off of videos on YouTube. So the reason why I want to mention this was that first, that these rules are in place now, and I have an interesting article from The Advocate from Mount Hood Community College, a student newspaper that talks about the rules and a little bit about how they take aim at content creators. And because a lot of content creators are of a, a younger set, it's generally a younger audience that's putting on you know, medium and small size channels. I think that's a, an important piece. But I also want to give a shout out to another EdTech podcast. It's the EdTech Takeout. And a shout out to Jonathan, Amber, and Mindy. Their 71st episode talks about these changes in YouTube. Um, and they kind of refer to it from a, 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 like what this means particularly to schools. And they themselves utilize YouTube a lot for training videos that are not necessarily aimed at students, although those videos could get shared with students ultimately. But I would refer you to that episode to listen to some of the interesting things that are going on and then what they perceive to be as some of the downfalls of that. They also talk about something we referred to in the past, that there's no longer branded accounts in Google Apps for Education. They also talk about the nature of that. But rules you need to be made aware of, and uh, whether you agree with YouTube's new rules or not, there are significant protections in place by federal law aimed at adolescents and children that I think a lot of EdTech-focused tools have tended to ignore or at least not take as seriously as they should have, and those things seem to be changing. Well, um, I really need to follow up. I got a tweet from Ben Kalb, who is Mr. Kalb, M-R-K-A-L-B. He has the Rain Waves, not Brain, but with a V, Rain Waves podcast. Um, he's out in Logmont, Colorado, and they've made some changes to what they allow in terms of YouTube on their student devices as a result of terms of service changes. And so I want to do some more diving into that, finding out um, a little more about that decision. He said that it was a complex decision. Um, but these changes with YouTube, um, uh, you know, they are responses to outcries and issues we've talked about on the show in terms of the ways in which, uh, you know, con some pretty bad content, quote unquote, bad, we'll, we'll say, um, you know, offensive, offensive to some and, and arguably inappropriate content, um, you know, has, has been um, available and even, you know, specifically through the algorithm, um, you know, targeted to, to children and to others, the ways in which data has been shared and monetized, you know, fines have been given to YouTube, uh, you know, so this, this, you know, is a privacy issue, um, and I put another article in. This is from the YouTube official blog on February 3rd. Um, this is a this is a positive thing, but it, it also ties to YouTube and changes. And the title of the article is How YouTube Supports Elections. And so it is speaking to issues of, you know, uh, disinformation and um, ways in which election-related content violates their policies. And so talking about the community guidelines, they have deceptive practice policies. And so, you know, they're, they're going to terminate channels that uh, attempt to impersonate other people or channels uh, that try to artificially increase number of views, comments. We've talked about the weaponization of social media, the way in which YouTube videos, you know, are created by algorithms and then, you know, Twitter accounts that are, that are, um, you know, operated by bot networks. And so, you know, they are liking and favoriting and, and trying to boost up, you know, the, this, these different narratives that, that ultimately, you know, some groups want to come into mainstream media. These are responses to these things. And we broadly, you know, Jason has termed it the tech correction, right? We've had 
since the Cambridge Analytica, you know, reveals of, of the 2016 election and the ways in which, uh, you know, people's data was, was, you know, utilized illegally, uh, to, to do things, we're, we're having the companies respond. And so I think it's very good to see these kinds of responses. Um, one of the, the paragraphs here in this YouTube blog post is titled Raise Up Authoritative Election News. And it says that they are, quote, raising up authoritative voices, including news sources for news and information. Just this last week, I was, you know, helping my students. And this is interesting from a terms of service, you know, aspect, but I was helping them set up accounts on Pocket, okay, which is a third party, you know, service. Um, and so we're talking about how to how to read the web with less distraction, but how do we determine a trusted voice? You know, how do you figure out? Is this somebody who's, you know, writing an article out of their garage or at some, you know, some group that, that wants to, to influence an election and they, they, they may be from another country or, or from, you know, some kind of group or, and, or it's just, it's actually a journalist. And I'm teaching fifth and sixth graders, right? This is, this is challenging. And so one of the things that I've helped them do, um, we're using a website called Newsy, uh, com, which I really like a lot as, you know, short video summaries of news articles, but we're also using Google news. And I was teaching them about the, you know, full coverage icon and saying that all of the sources that you're going to see off of a Google news, they're going to represent different political perspectives, but all of them are going to be journalist, you know, websites. They're not going to be you know, some, some screwballs, you know, garage or whatever out of his bedroom, you know, uh, v you know, vitriolic news source, you know, trying, trying to, you know, have clickbait headlines and things like that. We, we've got that kind of stuff being shared a lot on Facebook. So anyway, I'm glad to see YouTube responding to this. Um, any other thoughts that you have, Jason, about these changes in terms of elections or have you heard about any of that terms of service stuff and any Montana schools talking about, you know, maybe changing whether or not students are allowed to have access to YouTube. I've not heard any specific in, in that way, but one thing I do want to mention that I think we we need to remember when we talk about YouTube, especially as it relates to ed tech, is that the problem with any restriction on YouTube is that this is where you go now for video in 2020. And I'm not just talking about uh, user-created video. I'm talking about, you know, 25 years ago, uh, nonprofit organizations and the one I, I'm thinking about right now is the Zero Population Institute, who used to put out great videos. I, I am a former social studies or, or classroom, uh, uh, social studies classroom teacher, and I used to talk a lot about population growth and as part of, of world geography classes that I taught. And there is a lot, the Zero Population Growth Institute used to put out uh, videos every couple of years that showed animations about uh, the possible increases of population over the next century. And the reason why I mention that is because I guarantee that the vast majority of nonprofits that created interesting discussion, uh, sparking materials for classrooms that used to send them out on VHS tapes or even DVDs are now putting that information on YouTube and not sending not the physical media anymore, and not to mention most classrooms don't have a DVD player or VHS player anyways plugged into their screen or their monitor. And again, I get YouTube's complicated. I get the bandwidth is complicated. I get the bandwidth is at a premium and that, you know, it's it's not going to deliver great videos for discussion to classroom. All the bandwidth is being taken up by Kesha videos. But I do think that we have to be very careful before we start blocking whole categories of sites because I think that content is worth at least a discussion about maybe bringing in more bandwidth than blocking students and teachers from that site. So just uh, my regular YouTube rant to kind of end up the topic.
Sounds good. Well, hey, I'd like to <laughs> talk about something that I really don't want to talk about, but I feel like we have an obligation to talk about, and we have referenced some of these articles. But this is a four-part series that the New York Times did. Um, the last one was was right before Christmas on December 23rd. And uh, I've actually put, you know, 10 different links here, which I think I'll probably – end up sharing them all in our show notes, but um, I'll go ahead and read the headlines here in a second. But let me let me just say overall, and this is going to be my challenge to you, Jason, of your thoughts. This is causing me to rethink an absolutist position about encryption, right? We've talked about encryption on the web and one of the things that's about to happen. In fact, that's an article that I've got here um, from the, um, I guess this is New York Times as well. Uh, this is saying that um, basically companies are there's a lot of companies that have that have sent letters you know to to the government um, talking about how um, you know Facebook's decision to try and encrypt and that's what they say they're going to do not only Facebook messages but Instagram messages um, and you know, all, all of, of the, you know, 90%, according to one of these articles, of all the reported cases of child sexual abuse images were on Facebook in 2018, 90% of them. And so in reading most of these articles, of, I mean, and I'll, I'll admit, I, I haven't completely gotten through all of part three and part four. Um, it's making me rethink that. And so um, we've we've talked about on the show, there's a number of folks who will have an absolutist position about encryption, and they'll say we absolutely should not have any government backdoors. And, and I'm not saying I think encryption should always have a backdoor. I think there needs to be a place for it. But on a platform like Facebook, um, because let's let's see the agenda here, right? Facebook wants to grow, and they want more and more people to be using their platform. And it's really bizarre because Facebook's one of the main, you know, companies that has caused, and I say caused, they've been a participant in this whole dynamic where we give away so much information about ourselves and have, have come to this, you know, era where people have said privacy is dead and I don't care, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. But now in this case, we're going to, they're going to go ahead and do encryption to try to protect privacy. You know, they're really not trying to support the value of privacy, um, and so here's some head, uh, the headline. So New York Times, September 27th or 29th, 2019. We've talked about this and the, the way that they try to visualize this just blows your mind to pieces. The Internet is overrun with images of, of child sexual abuse. What went wrong? One of the things that's so um, disturbing about this is the ways in which laws changed in the United States in 2008, but they weren't fully funded by the Congress. And so I might have mentioned before on the show that our middle daughter is right now studying digital forensics. In fact, she has a, a crime lab class that she's, you know, been taking this new semester that started. And uh, she had a real overview seminar class last year. But, you know, personally, I don't hope that our daughter is going to be one of these people having to patrol the Internet for the horrific content that's out there. Right. One of the things these articles br br has brought out is that companies like Facebook um, and Twitter are not using scanning technologies that could keep a lot of these images from being redistributed. 
So anyway, that's part one. Then in November, um, they did part two. It's called Child Abusers Run Rampant as Tech Companies Look the Other Way. That was from November 9th. Then on December 7th, they shared one called Video Games and Online Chats Are Hunting Grounds for Sexual Predators. This is actually uh, influencing me as we look to our next parent university at school, talking about the Discord server, talking about how kids through Xbox Live, through Roblox, through all kinds of websites, have a lot of opportunities to be chatting with strangers. And then, for instance, if they join a Discord server, which is used to talk live and to chat, and it's really a big thing for gamers, you know, potentially folks who are trying to, you know, contact, stu- you know, children to do sextortion or even to meet them in, in real life. And, you know, we, we, this has been a, this is a fear for a long time, but this, this stuff is real in terms of this is happening and the scale of it is just, is beyond almost our comprehension. It's something we need to talk with parents about. And then their last article right before Christmas, December 23rd, was called Fighting the Good Fight Against Online Sexual Abuse. And so I've put in a link uh, to what's called Grooming in the Digital Age. This is from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, they had a, uh, another article in this. It wasn't a part of the four-part series, but it's by two girls um, who were you know, victimized in early on and can't use their name because one of the things these predators know is that folks who are victims, you know, will be more susceptible to be preyed on again. Um, that article is called, If These Were Pictures of You, You Would Understand. And then I went ahead and uh, put in several EFF links, not because I'm agreeing with them, but, but I think I, I'm being challenged myself to think about my own views on this. And so the EFF's October 3rd, 2019 article is titled The Open Letter from the Governments of the U.S., U.K., and Australia to Facebook is an all-out attack on encryption. You know, and my thought is not necessarily, right, because we don't need to be advocating for a break of every kind of encryption to say something like, hey, Facebook, you need to provide a way for law enforcement, you know, because you were responsible in 2018. And I say responsible. The DM, the Digital Millennium Rights Copy, Copyright Act or whatever says that we don't hold platform owners responsible for the content of users. But at some point, there's some shared responsibility here. And so understanding that Facebook had 90 percent of all reported cases of child online sexual abuse photos in 2018, like that is, and the scale of it just, just blows your mind. I think we need to, to, to rethink an absolutist position on encryption. And so there's uh, a couple of their EFF articles and then a common sense media post that's about a year old, but it's called the parents ultimate guide to discord. And if you do have kids, whether they're teens or preteens that are using games, it's essential to, to find out how they're talking with others who they are interacting with, if they're just interacting with friends, if they're interacting with strangers. You know, we have numerous cases, and a lot of this goes unreported, where kids have, an inter, you know, interactions with some kind of an adult, and that can sometimes lead to an exchange of pictures, and it can lead to sextortion, and it can lead to some really, really bad stuff. So, Jason, this is a yucky topic. It's not a fun one, um, but it is one that I think – you know, even though parents seem to be today more concerned with screen time than they are with the Internet bogeyman, you know, the Internet bogeyman is is still out there. And the scale of, you know, the, these horrific pictures has just gotten to a point where it's, you know, nobody wants to talk about it, including legislators. So um, do you just want to go on to the next topic? <laughs> <laughs> what I would say is that I, one of the things that that I talk about a lot and, and I think that that we refer to it all the time here on the podcast as well, is that these, there, there are very few cut and dry things, um, on 
the internet uh, when it comes to figuring out where it plugs into our, our life and culture. And so uh, this is something I hadn't considered when it comes to encryption. Uh, that is, uh, to, as a matter of fact, I am a huge advocate for end-to-end encryption. And I think the debate that's been going on nationally as it relates to Apple and their either un- unwillingness or inability, it's hard to know what the reality of that is, whether they've built in enough protections to where they can even access information, uh, even if they wanted to, or if they're making a conscious choice not to participate with law enforcement, that I've been generally uh, an advocate of what Apple's doing there, because I think that if you create a, a master key for things, the master key can tend to get out of the box and become then a massive or potential massive violation of privacy. But this is a use case where I would question that a little bit. So I'm not sure if I have an answer as much as a commitment that I need to think about this a little more deeply. And in fact, that's the issue here, right? None of this stuff is ever going to be decided for good or for sure. And as technology evolves as it, as it will over time, we have to consider if there's broader implications to this than just narrow use cases that tend to be discussed first in the media. And I think we also need to each consider our own advocacy agenda, right? Because as we become aware of these things, I think that we have obligations as citizens to contact our legislators and to, you know, take a look at interest groups who are supporting an agenda, whether it is to have some regulation of, of, of tech companies, um, from a basis of privacy or to, you know, have some, uh, some legislation written for privacy or, or something that involves you know, encryption. I, th- I think that, um, you know, it's, it's odd that we're trying to basically prevent law enforcement from being able to access information today. I mean, the bad guys have so many different ways and they are, you know, accessing our information in, in, in a lot of different, uh, you know, with a lot of different methods, um, a lot of different hacks. And so, um, I think one of the things that I want to do, and I think I'm going to try to explore this a little more actually through my daughter's connections. They, they had a special luncheon today. She's in this special dormitory for uh, digital forensics majors. Uh, well, it's, it's for um, students that are part of the, the overall forensic science program. And she, she's still, you know, taking more of the digital track. She's going MIS instead of, of comp sci as a second major. But, um, you know, We've got, uh, the FBI's local headquarters, you know, basically co-located right across the street from the university. There's a lot of collaboration and there's, you know, different folks. She, she got to interview a member of the local police force who's involved in doing, you know, some cyber crime, you know, kinds of things. And so it's not something that I'm like sitting around going, man, I'd really like to be able to jump into this world of darkness. In fact, I think we, we need to, to guard our minds and our hearts, you know, at whatever age we are, as we, as we step into this, because even just reading some of this stuff, um, it, it's, it's really troubling, but you know, the fact that legislators don't, don't want to talk about it. And this is a big takeaway. It's been so underfunded and those folks are so outgunned and, and outmanned in terms of what they're facing. One of the articles says that one in 10 Homeland Security folks today, hope Homeland Security officials is dedicated towards trying to, you know, counter this online child exploitation. And it's so much that they basically have to say, well, we're really going to just focus on infants and toddlers. We don't have time to focus on these other cases. So if a child is older than a quote toddler age, they're, they're in some cases not even 
able to pursue those cases and try and defend. And so it reminds me also, I, I spent some time <clears throat> after college, you know, living in Mexico City on a Fulbright scholarship, uh, studying the drug war and writing, you know, several different papers, one of which was about the drug war. And it's weird now because we're not legalized recreational marijuana, but we are medicinal marijuana. And we've got CBD shops all over the place. And it's really bizarre because this has happened like in the last year here in Oklahoma. But, you know, countering the scourge of, of illegal drugs and illicit drug use is not a war that gets won and it ends. It's something that continues like crime, right? Crime is going to continue to be a part of the landscape of humanity. So I think that we all ought to think not only about sort of just cognitively and, you know, in our own minds, learning about these things, we need to think about an advocacy agenda. Um, and we're not being, I'm not trying to say we're becoming a political show, but I am saying we talk about student voice. We talk about digital citizenship. We talk about using these tools, you know, well, um, I think we need to consider the ways in which we, we need to take the information and the perspectives that we can gain as quote technologists or those who are a little more into, you know, what, what is it? What is a VPN? What is it? What does encryption mean? What's, what are the implications? And we, and we need to be talking to our elected representatives about that. So I think I'm going to try to take that on as well, because this is, this is, this is really important. And it's, it's something that, um, you know, regulation and legislation will affect as we've seen Europe with the GDPR, you know, have effects here in the United States. Um, we, we may or may not be the ones here in the United States to pass this legislation, but it's certainly something we need to consider. Outstanding. Or two next, sir. Uh, let's see here. Why don't we talk a little bit about, um, oh, this is a, uh, an easy quick one. Happy 15th birthday to Google Maps, uh, which is, is, uh, started off as a web based property and then over time has become a mobile, a must have mobile app, both on iOS and Android platforms. And eventually it offered things like, uh, uh, Directions, uh, driving directions, walking directions. Um, I was traveling this week. I was uh, at the Idaho Educational Technology Association in lovely Boise, Idaho, and also stopped by and saw my friends at the Idaho Digital Learning Alliance, the state virtual school uh, in Idaho, uh, great colleagues and friends of ours there. And um, it also has things like lane guidance so that when you're driving through, especially urban areas, and you need to be in this lane or that lane to access things, it's got awesome things there. Um, I'm, a again, former social studies teacher, so I... I do think there is value in digging out good old-fashioned paper maps, knowing how to use those, not because necessarily you might ever have to use them, but because I think there's important things that you can learn there about uh, about spatial geography and uh, spatial knowledge and direction, but it's it certainly made things easier for us. And I want to quote my wife, who... Uh, uh, 12, 13 years ago when we were renting cars, we used to be offered a GPS. You could buy a GPS that mounted to your dashboard in your rental car. You could buy one personally. And when they said, did you want this? And we'd ask the, I'd ask the price and they would say $15 a day. And my wife looked over me and she goes, well, cheaper than a divorce. So, uh, Google Maps preventing marital discord everywhere. So I'm assuming, Wes, that you use the Google Maps, uh, occasionally for your, for your traveling pleasure. 
all the time. And yep. I've actually deleted the Apple uh, Maps app after not not being, you know, led to drive into a lake or the ocean, as we've read, you know, some some cases, you know, people have done, but just, you know, having some big mistakes with it. So it is my go-to app. And uh, actually, GeoMaps are a great project to do with students. You could visit showwithmedia.com and click the link for GeoMaps if you wanted more information about that. We just had a trip a couple weeks ago to the Dallas area where uh, about 10 of us, or I guess nine of us from our middle school and upper uh, school administration, uh, we visited four schools that are one-to-one in the Dallas area. And, you know, I used my Google My Maps, mymaps.google.com. And we were able to very easily identify, you know, where these schools were, what order we wanted to visit them and all that kind of stuff. So it is valuable not only in our handheld device but you know it's very very cool if you're hosting any kind of event professional development we've done that before you know showing area hotels things like that um geomaps are a great project because it allows you to you know overlay information you know geospatially so you can not only have your map pins but your you know photographs your links um data things like that it's good hey what about this Apple stuff, the tragic iPad. You're going to diss yeah. the iPad on us tonight? What's up with this? Well, I want to diss it. What I want to do, though, is maybe start a discussion. We're, we're a couple months away from the 10-year anniversary of the release of the iPad, and um, I'm sure that, that Wes was in the same position I was, that the, that the announcement of the iPad was uh, a, a long time coming. Uh, it very interesting. It was one of uh, Steve Jobs' last reveals uh, before uh, he ultimately retired from Apple and then ultimately passed away, and I believe it was fall 2012 or 13, and um, obviously uh, an important device. But the reason why there's been a lot of, of media about this particular topic in the last couple of weeks, the 10-year anniversary uh, is important, along with the release of uh, Apple's uh, fourth quarter results or the holiday quarter results. Um, they took in a record $91.8 billion in sales. And one of the items that uh, they, they don't break things down uh, very easily for uh, users because they don't have to. That's that's based on a, on a legal obligation of what they need to break down or what they don't. But most of the analysts have taken a look at the numbers. And I would refer you to a great article from Six Colors uh, on January 28th. It talks about what, what their increasing share in or what where sales have increased and where sales have decreased. But iPad sales have re- remained fairly stagnant over the past couple of years and in fact in some cases have decreased in their overall part of Apple sales and um, the iPad in a lot of people's view is turned to a bit of a dud and so I want to refer to uh, an interesting article from Stratechery which is a um, a, a well-respected technology blog and it basically goes through where is the iPad needing its um promise and where is it not? And the reason why I wanted to put this in front of your eyes, Wes, is I know how big of an advocate you are for the iPad. I know how much you yourself use your iPad. And in fact, many weeks when you are uh, uh, broadcasting the EdTech Situation Room, you're doing it from your iPad, right? And in in this case, you're using it for, I'm looking looking at notes, I'm assuming, is what you're using your iPad for tonight. You've got uh, microphone rigs to plug into it. You If you with them, you do green screening with it. It's an extraordinary creation device. But this article talks in some detail about how the iPad in a lot of ways has really not met its promise as a content creation device. And then more importantly, it really does end up kind of sticking in the middle ground of content 
um, consumption as opposed to being a great creator's device um, or doing anything um, beyond that as a concept. Now, obviously, there's a huge debate here because I don't think the iPad is any different than other platforms of tablets that minus maybe the Amazon tablets, which in a lot of cases are giveaways by the price you're selling them for, tablets really have diminished in sales because I think cell phones have become more functional with larger screens and you know, the single device beats multiple devices. But I want to ask you, Wes, in context of the upcoming 10-year anniversary, is the iPad still a great go-to education device? Is it a great content creator device? Is it meeting its ultimate promise? Well, there's a great table um, <clears throat> that is on the Stratechery uh, article, The Tragic iPad, um, titled Apple's Mobile Devices. And in the columns, it, it has content creation, content consumption, mobility, and price. And then the rows are the laptop, the iPad, and the, and the iPhone. And um, what it's arguing is that each device is superior in only one category. So the laptop is only superior in content creation, the iPad only superior in content consumption, and then the iPhone only superior in mobility. I actually am looking at this thinking I might, you know, make my own. And I'd really like to, to hone in on that content creation column because if you talk about text, you know, content creation, most of us who have tried, and I have at times, to make a switch for a, for a period of time to say, I'm going to be iPad only, have been very frustrated by the keyboard or the lack of the keyboard and just the challenge of, you know, an app-based environment versus a full web environment. Um, but, man, when it comes to media creation, you know, that's where the iPad, I mean, this is ridiculous to say below average, because when it comes to, to green screen, but also video production overall, a few years ago when I was in Yukon Public Schools, you know, each of our campuses there had a teacher of the year and we had interviews that we did with, I think, three, maybe three different folks that were teachers and, and students. And so I think it was like over a period of two days, I went to each campus, was set up to interview those teachers and students. And then like before I left each school, right on the iPad, I was, you know, editing the iMovie, you know, exporting it, getting it done. I mean, there's no way that kind of mobile media production um, would be as easy on a laptop as it as it is arguably on either the iPad or or the iPhone. Um, and in terms of content creation, when you think of media and photos, I mean, we had a snow day yesterday and I was I was taking pictures with slow-mo on my iPad Pro. It's just you know so amazing. So I, I would like to see that broken up. We are in the midst of talking as a school about one-to-one -one initiatives at our middle school. Um, I'm not going to be revealing anything, you know, that's going to be secret or, you know, a compartmentalized information here. Um, but like I said, a couple of weeks ago, we sent a group down to the Dallas area. Um, and one of the big questions we're looking at is, is, uh, you know, Chromebook versus iPad. And so the, the current generation iPads, like the seventh generation actually does have a side dock that won't Bluetooth connect, but it, but it dock connects. And then we had last year the announcement of iPad OS, which is a full blown, you know, regular Google docs on the Safari browser, you know, not, you know, getting the mobile version, et cetera. Um, <laughs> I believe this firmly, and this was reinforced by our trip. You know, I'll put it in my hand here. This is the Apple Pencil 2, right? I, I, I hope that in the not too distant future, you know, we 
laugh at how we got a device for schools that didn't allow teachers and students to easily pick up a stylus and interact with content, whether that was, you know, um, you know, correcting a paper, working math problems, being able to make a sketch note. There's a lot of people that are going to be doing that, but certainly, you know, using natural writing as, you know, as well as language, as well as keyboarding, et cetera. So I really think that the one-to-one -one device, um, needs to be a sort of a 360 of how do I get my ideas, you know, in, into this? Uh, how do I create and share? And I think that the iPad, you know, is, uh, I'd, I'd be interested from you and others, Jason, on who's really innovating in terms of the Chrome devices with, you know, either OneNote or other kinds of touch technologies. You know, I, I haven't heard or seen of, of schools really doing phenomenal things with styluses and Chrome devices. So I think the iPad, you know, is, is in its seventh generation. It's an incredibly, um, robust device as far as its uh, value and how long it lasts, you know, and, and just the other night when I was looking, it was last night, I was looking through some of these New York Times articles I cited, you know, and I'm sitting in laying in bed, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be doing that in my laptop. Okay. I don't know that my wife is going to, you know, eject <laughs> me from the, the bed, but like, it's just not going to be something that the form factor of the laptop it, I'm going to be doing. But being able to do that on my iPad is is how I'm I'm choosing to in that case consume content, but then I'm also doing things with it. So, yes, that's a very long-winded answer. I'm still an advocate for the iPad. I'm eager to see what this next generation is going to do. And frankly, the fact that the Chromebook has you know caused Apple at, at price points to really you know lower their price. When have we seen Apple do that and have a device that is in about a three hundred dollar you know range? Of course, you need to probably look at a case, you look at a keyboard, you look at a stylus, it's going to be more than that. But um, I'm going to be, of course, excited and interested to see what our school decides to do. Um, you know, I think the trajectory of where we've been, we've got seven Chromebook carts now, you know, just going with, with a Chromebook would probably be much less disruptive for us. But personally, as a, as a learner and as a teacher, you know, I, I want it all. And, and this, the Harry Potter pen of the, of the stylus, um, it's an important piece. And not a lot of people are experiencing that today. And uh, so I think that's why we see an article like that that's saying, hey, from a content creation standpoint, you know, the iPad is just terrible. Um, that's not somebody who's doing sketch noting, you know, on a weekly basis or, you know, creating videos who's saying that. Do you think that was a was a fair table of comparison between content creation, consumption, and mobility? Well, I I, I think it it from a broad stroke it is right, and obviously it's data based on you know about the the breakdown of prices from that. So I think it'd be interested in in maybe updating that chart and asking people to think about that. But the one thing I would say that that is generally true is that. I can I can get away with a Chromebook as my primary operating system. I could not get away with an iPad as my primary operating system. And because that even with, and, and admittedly, I've not tried the more enhanced version of Safari yet. To be honest, I never liked Safari as a browser. Uh, even when I was a more frequent um, uh, uh, iOS user, I guess it would be iPad OS user now, uh, I, I never really found um, or had an opportunity to use that. So I can't say for absolute certain, but I, I do think there is a distinction between productivity and creation, right? Creation is a big part of productivity for me because of the nature of my day job and what I do spend a lot of time doing as a user. But the bottom line for me is that uh, I, I still think 
that we're still trying to find one device that does it all. And I just don't think that's very fair, right? I think that it's multiple devices and it's, it's going to be a long time until we find the one device that rules them all that there's probably always, at least from a matter of size, always going to be a bigger device and a smaller device. And, and when I say, when I say that I'm, I'm talking about in, in essence, I'm not even saying power users. I'm just talking about people that are beyond consumption users, right? Like my parents don't, they both have laptops. My mom, I guess, does have a use for one because she is a business owner and does keep books for, for her own business. But beyond that, my dad has a laptop and doesn't need a laptop. He can get away with a tablet. But, I, but for users that, that, that do anything beyond, uh, consumption of, 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 of media, I do think that there is some power in having multiple devices that do that. And while I probably would be tempted to get a cart full of Chromebooks over iPads if I were in a classroom, I also would love it if there was four or five iPads in my classroom to enhance content creation as part of that process. And maybe the collection of data or the collection of media is the iPad. Maybe the editing of the media is partially iPad. And then we move eventually back onto the, the Chromebooks if, if I were, you know, trying to find perfection. But I do think that, um, I, I, considering how powerful the iPad chipset is, considering, uh, the battery life on the iPad, considering the beautiful screens on the iPad, I do think Apple, uh, owes a little more development and maybe some thought into enhancing that particular platform. So I'll leave that at that. Sounds good. Hey, you want to, we're going to be approaching geeks of the week and I don't see your link in there. So you, you may need to, to come up with something quickly, but to really put you on the spot with multitasking, how about the smart stuff article from Engadget? Uh, it's titled every smart device you love will die. Um, what, what does this mean to me as a consumer? Well, this is an interesting article because it, it's a follow-up of, of something we talked about last week in re, re, reference to Sonos products. We talked about last week that Sonos had announced that they were going, uh, or they were going to ask users to put their old devices into a recycling mode, which, is, which essentially disabled the device. In exchange for that, they would give a discount on updating those devices. And I guess I didn't really think about this last week, but this article, along with some other media I've seen from Sonos, uh, in response, and, and to be fair, Sonos has announced that they, they reversed that decision because they don't feel as if uh, uh, the, the, their market had supported them on that. So they're going to continue to support Sonos devices as long as they can with updates that make sense on the hardware. But the point of this article, uh, which uh, uh, kind of talks about this notion of smart devices and what happens to old smart devices, is that all smart devices will die at some point because if there's software running them and the software is critical to the function, at some point that software will stop being updated, which means at the minimum it's security risk. And then at some point that software is, is going to stop functioning because it's too old or can't interface with newer technologies or can't interface with newer networks. And with everything coming out as a smart device, smart speaker, smart television, smart home devices, that there is a somewhat natural end of the product that will occur. And they particularly mentioned vintage audio equipment. Uh, there is a huge market in 2020 for people looking at 1960s and 70s and 80s era audio equipment, many of which is run by some form of minimal electronics, but 
it still works in 2020, and the ubiquitous RCA plug, which is the standard way that a audio source talks to a receiver and the receiver talks to speakers, works just fine in 2020. And you can plug in your personal computer to a 1970s-era receiver, which is then pushed out to 1960s-era speakers and get a beautiful, crisp sound um, on that equipment. And that just dies in an era where software runs uh, the deal, which means there's plan obsolescence in everything. So, you know, 50 years from now, your Alexa speaker, your classic Alexa speaker, probably not going to be a hot commodity because it probably doesn't work at all. Absolutely. But, of course, we've seen that happen with appliances more generally. My grandfather, you know, loved taking apart our tube TV every Christmas and, you know, was an appliance guy, um, one of his uh, – fellow. In fact, I gave my first TED talk telling a story about him, Fred McPherson, who was an appliance uh, repair and sales guy down in uh, Itasca, Texas. And, you know, those days have gone by the wayside as all our technologies are essentially disposable and folks would like to just see us, you know, throw them away and purchase something new in a few years. It'll be interesting if that if that dynamic changes at some point, either through a DIY movement or, you know, other folks that are able to, you know, monetize more, more lasting consumer goods. So we are at the top of the hour. We need to do some geeks of the week. So I'll do mine quickly. Uh, Digital Learning Day, February 27th, 2020. You can find out more at digitallearningday.org. Their Twitter account is official DL Day. And uh, this is an opportunity, as we see with, you know, many days kind of like this to uh, take advantage of events and things like that that people are hosting. You can host your own event, but you can go to the participate link and, uh, you know, check out um, events and things like that that are going on. They've got an interactive map. And uh, so I think that's, you know, worth learning about and sharing with uh, other teachers that you're working with. And then I want to just also mention I have made a number of updates to my digital citizenship Twitter list, um, which I'll include the link in the show notes. And if you're not using Twitter lists, they are phenomenal, right? Because when you have a topic and you find folks who are sharing about that particular topic, you can use Twitter to see, you know, what they're sharing. But you can also put that into a tool like Flipboard, uh, one of my favorite digital magazines talking about the iPad and how it's transformative. And so that is Excellent. And you can not only, you don't have to build the list yourself, you can follow other people's lists. So if you're interested in digital citizenship, you can follow that list uh, and find some excellent folks that know far more than Jason and I do, certainly in aggregate. And that's the wonderful thing about crowdsourcing, right? And being a, a connected learner and a connected educator is being able to tap into the wisdom of the crowd. And, you know, this is how we find probably most of the articles that we find is, you know, because other smart people that we are, uh, following are are sharing these kinds of things. So what do you have this week for us for a Geek of the Week, Jason? Well, as I think I've mentioned here on the past in the podcast, I'm a huge uh, uh, airplane flight airport guy. And it has to do with the fact that as a younger younger uh, kid, my parents couldn't really afford uh, to, to go out on, on uh, vacations every year via a plane flight. We did a lot of stuff as a kid. We took one plane flight uh, when I was a kid. It was a, a trip to Disneyland in Hawaii when I was going, I'm sorry, it was the Christmas of my kindergarten year. Um, my parents cashed in their life insurance. We went on the family vacation to end all family vacations. 
But I always loved the airport, and I used to bring home airport timetables and dream about going to places. Well, here it is, 2020, and I get to travel all the time, and I love it. absolutely love it. But there's a cool app that is kind of speaks to that uh, nerdiness of, of mine. It's called Planes Live. It's available on iOS or Android. One fair warning, they're going to try to get you to pay for a pro version, which um, they seem to suggest is needed to be able to do the most exciting thing of, or the exciting feature of the app, which is not true at all. In fact, you can, I, I did sign up for the pro version for, for 24 hours and then cut it because I figured out you didn't need it. But the reason why I like this is because it has a map available where you can zoom in and will show you all of the planes in the air in that area and you can click on them and they will tell you where they're going and where they're coming from. And that is just super interesting to me because if you look over the night sky over uh, Missoula, Montana and see planes going by, those planes are unlikely to be going to a destination in Montana. It could be a going from Chicago to South Korea, or it could be going from New York uh, to Seattle, Washington, or it could be going from Vancouver to Miami. And that's something that's, that's super interesting. So great app, a lot, a lot of fun distraction. And if you're an airport, nerd like me, it's at least worth minutes, if not hours, if not days of fun. Awesome. That is fantastic. Well, Jason, when you are not here on the EdTech Situation Room, I think you are also sharing knowledge and wisdom. Where would those locations and channels be? My primary way of connecting is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, where I try to share articles. I do do quite a bit of reading in uh, both national media and various blogs across the blogosphere about things that are technologically related. I'm also the Northwest Council for Computer Education's Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence. You can go to our blog, blog.ncc.org, and there's less than a month until NCCE 2020 in Fia- Fia- uh, Fabulous Seattle. I think I try to mix the word fabulous and Seattle together. Fiable. Wool. And that's what you get at the end of the show, folks. We make up words. So right. yeah, that's the okay. the end. in fact, if you probably took a transcript of our show, I make up quite a few words during the typical episode, but in fabulous Seattle, Washington in March, uh, www.ncce.org. Awesome. And I am W Fryer on Twitter. My blog speed of creativity.org is my space to periodically share some blog posts and podcasts, which I've actually been posting a few a um, few more posts than usual, which I've, I'm happy to do. Uh, and then I'm continuing to update my curriculum. We're about to end our second trimester next week. And so I will be teaching again another approximately 24 session class of digital and media literacy to fifth and sixth graders. And all that curriculum you can find online at mdtech.cassidy.org. We will include those links and all of the articles that we talked about on tonight's show on tonight's podcast and you'll find that at edtechsr.com and the appropriate link for that. So we encourage you to follow us on Twitter. We are normally here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Mountain, yada, 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 whatever that happens to be in your neck of the woods. But we love to hear from folks, and you can reach either of us on Twitter. Uh, definitely let us know if you listen to the show, if there's any particular article or topic that resonates with you, and we look forward to being with you again virtually here on the EdTech Situation Room. Until next time, stay savvy and stay safe, and perhaps rethink your absolutist position on encryption.